Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such, as, or such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I was thinking through what would be helpful for us to consider from the Word this morning, considering what we talked about last week, that there is a war that rages for the hearts and souls, the worship of every single person. And the only way to rightly fight in that war is to be equipped with the Word of God, which is the truth. And as believers, we engage a lost world. We even engage one another to think rightly, think clearly. But that ultimately begins with us being in Christ, on the right side, the right kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved Son. And that only comes by repenting and putting your faith in Christ, that you are now hidden in Christ, united with Christ, part of the body of Christ. And so as I was considering this, about Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, now gives us even more help, clarity of what that, our life, though we're in the midst of a war, what it looks like being in Christ, in the body of Christ. And so I titled this morning's message, New Life, New Walk. New Life, New Walk. New Life in Christ, that means we have a new walk, a new pursuit of what we do. And I think it being the, the beginning of a new year, it's always great to have a fresh reminder of what the gospel is, what it looks like to live the Christian life. And so we'll look at Ephesians 4, but as you notice, there are multiple chapters before Ephesians 4. So we're going to walk through the three chapters beforehand. Buckle up. No, we'll go quickly through this, but there is so much good stuff in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Those three chapters are loaded we could just spend all morning on one verse. But you think about if we get a running start into Ephesians 4, verse 25, Ephesians 1 begins the letter. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he begins this letter in 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3, by pointing out to us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or you could say, Praise be to our God and Father. Praise be to God. That's the main driving point that kicks off this letter. Praise be to God. And then he unpacks all that there is to praise God for. Especially as he unpacks in chapter 1 there the, the beauty, the extent of our salvation. And really in chapter 1, the focus is not on us, though he talks about the many spiritual blessings we receive having been 
predestined and chosen and adopted and sealed with the Holy Spirit and given a hope, a guarantee, an inheritance. Yeah, there is so much that benefits us, but really the whole focus of that chapter is praise be to God who would even do this for us sinners. God gets the glory for His powerful, His sovereign work to save sinners to the utmost end. Not just to possibly save them, but to actually save them. And then he moves in light of that. Chapter 2. Wonderful chapter. Spend some time, I would encourage you this week, even just looking at verses 1 through 10. But in light of praise be to God what he's done, chapter 2 begins with, hey, by the way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were dead to God in the sense that you were unable to respond to him. You did not love him. You were his enemy in sense. He would go on to say, you are captive to the fallen order of things, enslaved to the evil one, following the passions of your heart. And he's building up all this bad news about us, which is a true assessment of us outside of Christ. Right? So when we think about, pause real quick, when you think about the, what the world says about man, we evaluate what God says about man naturally. God says it's not a good, good scenario, not a good situation for us outside of Christ. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are naturally children of wrath. But verse 4 in chapter 2 shifts to say, hey, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, boy, we needed that mercy. He showed kindness towards us in a wretched state. But God, rich in mercy, though you were dead, He's made you alive. Alive by your union in Christ. You are now alive to Him. You are able to respond to Him. You want to live for Him. You commune with Him. You can understand His Word and what He has said. And so we are alive with Him, united with Christ. And all of this comes, He is very clear, there is no missing it. There is no need to play hermeneutical gymnastics and reinterpret what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say. It's by grace, not your works. By grace, God's kindness, undeserved kindness towards you. It's by grace you are saved through faith. Through faith. Not through faith plus, fill in the blank, plus works. It's by faith. By grace. Alone, through faith and love. So that Christ alone gets all the glory for what He's done. By grace alone, through faith alone, are we saved. In fact, verse 10, which we often forget, reminds us, hey, this saving, this making alive, changing you, it is the work of God. You are the workmanship of God. He gets the credit. He's doing the work. And now that you are in Christ, by grace, through faith, God has work for you to do. He has set apart good works for you to walk in. Not that the works save you, not that they contribute to the faith to save you. No, no, no. The works are the evidence of His saving you. And then he goes on to describe this in chapter, the end of 2 and 3, this beautiful body he has created this people called the church 
which is made up of people from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, not just Jews, but now it's Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, the church, it's such a wonderful mystery of God that He Himself has brought about that it displays God's own wisdom, that he could, he could do such a thing and He does such a thing. It shows the wisdom of God. The wisdom. I mean, it shows that God knows what He's doing, He knows how to accomplish it, and then He has the power to effectively accomplish it. He's building a church. He's building a church that not even this world or the enemy can overthrow. Jesus Christ promised to build His church. He will build it. He will continue to build it even in the darkest of hours, awaiting His glorious return. And then we hit the beginning of chapter 4. You have this shift in Ephesians 4 where in light of all these wonderful truths of what God has done to save us, which by the way, back in chapter 1, all of this is to the praise of God, not the praise of us, the praise of God. As those who have trusted in Christ, we are now part of this thing called the body of Christ. And we are to live in an appropriate manner that aligns with that calling, that unity into the body of Christ. And God has set up His church for the accomplishment, the body of Christ being the church. For the, he, he has set up this church in a certain way, with certain leadership, for the accomplishment of the work of service, for the work of the ministry. It takes the whole body doing the work of the ministry, not just a select few. So that all the, the church works together so that people would be saved and, as Paul would get at, so that the church itself, the people, would grow in maturity. No longer tossed to and fro by the deceitful beliefs and doctrines of the world, but we're mature. We show that we know Christ by the way we live for Christ among the people of Christ. So now, in Christ, a believer has nothing to do with living like an unbeliever. This is the immediate context beginning in verse 17 all the way up to through 24. Hey, in Christ, we no longer live like we once did outside of Christ. We are distinct. We are changed. That old life, it has been set aside. And verses 20 through 24 are fascinating. I mean, let's just read it. It says, but you did not learn Christ in a way, talking about right before the way the, these ignorant, uh, greedy, fleshly ways of living. You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, what's fascinating about that is these are not imperatives here calling you, hey, you need to put on this new self. You need to live in the likeness of, of God. You need to, you are to, to be created in righteousness and holiness. Actually, in this section right here, before our text today, which are imperatives, this text is actually what we call indicatives. They're statements of fact. That in Christ, it is a fact that you are united with Jesus. That your old life has been put away. You have been created in righteousness. You have been made holy. 
You've been made now in the likeness of God, not making us little demigods, but we now reflect the character of our God and Father. We have put on the new self. So we ought not live like the Gentiles, like the pagans who don't know God, because we have been made new by our union with Christ. And then he moves into our section for today, where he gives us these imperatives, this how we now live, what it looks like. But all that is going to be said, all that we're going to cover is based on the fact that if you repented and trusted in Christ, you have been made new by him. So now we live like people that have been made new. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness and set free to bondage to sin and the devil so that now you are slaves to Christ and know what true freedom is. So live like that. And our our passage today, 25 verses verses 25 through 32, really teaches us this. As new creations in Christ, the main takeaway point, as new creations in Christ, we are to set aside fleshliness and pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ. All right? As new creations in Christ, we are to set aside fleshliness and pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ. Now, as you go through, as we go through this, pay attention to how much of what is said directly involves interaction with one another. Involves being around each other having relationships with one another, friendships where we are actively pursuing each other, actively engaging with each other. And there's, a, there's really a pattern that unfolds in this section, a threefold pattern that kind of shows us a, a prohibition, so a negative put this off, a prohibition, a pursuit, which would be a positive command, do this, and then he provides a motivation, which is really nice. A prohibition, a pursuit, and a motivation. Now we're going to outline this really by seeing, as we look at those prohibitions, pursuits, and motivations, he gives us five areas of life where, where we must replace this old way of living with the new way of living in Christ. And the first one is verse 25, where we are to replace lying with the truth. Replace lying with the truth. Let's read it. Therefore... Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Therefore. And as all uh, you students know, when you see a therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, that's therefore a reason. It's saying in light of everything that's been said beforehand, in light of the work of God that He has done in you at conversion, now live like it matters. Live like it has actually accomplished something in your life. How do we do that? Put away falsehood. Put away lying. Put in away the, the blatant telling of lies, not telling the truth or only telling the half-truth. Or put away the intentional withholding of the truth. Any form of exaggeration, which we have to be careful of when we tell stories. Oh, we can exaggerate and embellish the details. That can be a form of lying. It's not giving the reality of what it is. It distorts what is real, in fact. Lying is a characteristic of, well, not God, the devil. 
He is a liar. He is the father of all lies, as Jesus said in John 8, 44. And unbelievers, those outside of Christ, where you were before you knew Christ, you're going to reflect the character of your father. And outside of Christ, your father is the devil. So it ought not to be the characteristic of someone who knows Christ, who has been reconciled to this God we give praise for, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't lie. We should speak the truth. Because our God is the God of truth. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 1 John 2, tells, verse 21, tells us it's never right to lie. But there's a warning in Revelation 21, 27, and 22, 15, we see the warning of those who enjoy deception, falsehood, lying, and those not who just enjoy it but practice it. The Bible warns they will not inherit eternal life. So the lifestyle of someone who is not trusting in Jesus is one characterized by deception, and often it's for our own gain. But the believer has put that, remember, we've put that lifestyle away. We've laid it aside, and instead we are to be pursuing a life of integrity, a life of Christ-likeness. That's our new aim. And why is that our aim? Because we are now in Christ. We know our wonderful Savior. And so we ought to live for our wonderful Savior, who's also our Lord and Master. Why do we, though, often lie still? It could be fear of man, fear of consequences, Maybe selfish desires. We want something, and I want it now. Don't get in my way. But at that point, okay, so if we do, why? Why are we doing that? What is our greatest love at that point? Well, it's not Christ. It's me. It's ourself. I want what I want, or I'm afraid if you find out what that is, there could be consequences for that. But we got to put it away, intentionally lay it aside. It's not worth it. We serve a new master who is far more wonderful and far more worthy, worthy to be followed. So we, we lay aside. We, it's prohibited. Prohibited? Prohibited. There's the word. English is hard. Prohibited from speaking deception. What's the positive pursuit here? The command? It is to speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Speak truth to each other. Speak the truth. Now, I love using the the NASB translation because it capitalizes here. We can see what are Old Testament quotes being used in the New Testament. And if you look at your Bibles, you see that's here. He's actually quoting Zechariah 8.16. And in that context, it's talking about there's a promise that The Lord will restore Jerusalem. He will restore Judah. He will restore, ultimately, just His people. It's going to happen. And He's giving this command here as, in the promise of that restoration, they ought to conduct their lives in light of being His people. Stop living this idolatrous, selfish way and live as the people of God. And so for us, he's using this here and reminded we're made new by the work of God through Christ. And in light of this relationship, this new identity, we ought to live in a way that honors our God who has shown us, what does chapter 2 say? Great mercy. And as God is our Father now, we ought to reflect the character of our Father 
And God is the God of truth. He speaks truth because He is the truth. So we ought to speak truth also. That's the mark of someone who knows God. And so we're commanded in a way that the words that come out of our mouths are to be honest. They're to be right. But the world feels no obligation to this. But we ought to feel an obligation to this. And we do so in a right manner as well. We do it in a right manner. Graciously. Gently. Right? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10 we looked at last week? He did it with his warning was with meekness and gentleness. You ought to reflect that too. And, and so what was that thing in the threefold, the prohibition, the pursuit, and the motivation, or the reason? Well, it says the text says, for we are members of one another. Do this because we are members of one another. We're a family in Christ. So much so, and so precious to Christ, we're called the body of Christ. We're not an organization. We're not the YMCA. We're not a political group. We are a family who will spend eternity together. Eternity. Forever. In the presence of the Lord. Where there's no more sin. Praise God, can't wait for that. Together, we're a family. I mean, imagine the impact on our bodies, the whole body, when one part of it does not function correctly. Imagine. We know what that is. Man, you ever get that eyelash that's poking your eye and it's just like, oh, it just paralyzes you for a second. You can't do anything but try to get it out. Or a broken bone or a surgery, let's say on an ankle. I don't know, something like that. I mean, it affects everything, especially the back. It affects everything. You, you stop your whole life to try to fix that problem. But when there is problem in the body of Christ, when there is fleshliness, everyone will eventually feel the effect of that. And so our words ought to be truthful because our words impact the life of the church. And those words and the attitudes, and they must be characterized by truth and love, but they must not be deceptive, and they must not be deceptive for self-gain. So as we think about when we share stories or encounters about someone with others, do we represent it correctly? Do we represent the other person whom we might have disagreed with? Do we represent them correctly as Christ would evaluate them? Or do we slightly change the details and give certain emphasis to make ourselves look innocent or look better? We've got to be careful with that. And as we go through, we must be honest with one another. We must confess our sins to one another. The Bible calls us to do that because we walk in integrity we walk in the truth. And as new creations in Christ, we just set aside that fleshliness and we pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ. This includes putting aside deceitful speech and practices and instead be people who live by the truth. So replace line with the truth. The next replacement that he gives us is in verses 26 through 27. We replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Let's read it. Be angry and yet do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. This first half of the passage is actually quoted from Psalm 4.4. And in the idea of that psalm, David tells his enemies to not carry out. It's like a warning. Don't carry out externally that internal anger you have. You must not be controlled by that anger. Well, we too must not be controlled by the anger. We are not to sin in our anger, and we don't let the sun go down on our anger. We we put away the, the sinful anger, which, let's be honest, we like to say we live in the realm of righteous anger, but in reality, we're often sinfully angry. And even the times it might begin as righteous anger, it easily drifts to being sinful. Okay, so then you might ask, okay, what makes it sinful? What, what makes sinful anger different than righteous anger? If you say we drift there so much, we live there so much, well, first, it's our motive. It's my motivation in that response. What am I wanting? What am I wanting here? Is it about me? Or is it about the glory of God? Is it about me, or is it about the goodness for the people of God? And then also it could be sinful then flowing into our reactions. Something happens, might begin well, but then it drifts, and we react. We respond harshly, critically, often because I didn't get something I wanted out of this. We become selfish and vindictive or wrathful. We even plot about it. And if we're doing those things, it's drifted into sinful anger. You could also ask, how does it become sinful? Well, in that moment, who is in control? Is it the, the emotional angry response or are you practicing self-control? If it's driven by our emotions, it's moved into, most likely moved into sinful anger. So we have to be very careful, very on guard. Remember, Jeremiah warns us, our hearts are deceitfully wicked, so we must always be careful and not just the default to think, well, I'm right, I'm justified in it. No, 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 no. New life in Christ, still battling and waging war with the flesh, i got to evaluate and examine my own heart. Mm, my response to my kids when they're not obeying, yeah, they should have obeyed, but where, where am I going with this? Is it, why haven't you obeyed? Go clean your room. I've told you 560,000 times. Please go do that. All right, no more please. Go do that. I'm right there. I understand. We have to be on guard. We have to be self-controlled and evaluate what's driving this response. He would go on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger which is just a proverbial statement, meaning to not let anger fester. Don't let it fester long because it can easily slip into that sinful response. Short idea, keep short accounts. We ought not to go to bed angry. That is a helpful application. But really, at best, we just keep short accounts. We try to find reconciliation when it's needed, quickly. We ought not brew in this just frustration, whether it's our family or at our friends or our discipleship group leader or our pastor or our neighbor who just keeps leaving trash in your yard, whatever it might be. We ought not brew on that. 
we keep short accounts. We don't dwell in an angry temperament. We don't just sit and wallow in the frustration and bitterness because, as we all know, that quickly, quickly creates a problem. Sin just begins to snowball. If you've done something wrong to someone and they're upset with you or they, you don't know if they're upset with you, just go ask for forgiveness. Confess it to them. Ask for forgiveness. So we're not to have sinful anger. We're not to fester long in anger. But we are, it is interesting, he says, be angry. All right, that's the pursuit. But, and there are times when legitimate anger is there. That righteous anger. When, when is this? This is when God and his people are maligned. When sin seems to prevail. When the truth is set aside. Now remember, our response to it has to be the right way. But I'm more concerned about the glory of God and the goodness of his people. But we do see things that are agitating, that are frustrating. Abortion. The twisting of how God has defined marriage. Murder. How about this? People being intentionally conned or scammed by a lie. That's a lie that's destroying someone's life. That should anger us. However, we then don't respond by just brewing on it and sitting on it. We might address it if we can, and we give it to the Lord. We trust Him. We don't take vengeance in our own hands. Eventually, we have to just leave it with God, our sovereign Lord, right? The one who controls the universe and knows what He's doing. We have to leave it with Him. So we must be careful not to slip into the sinful, angry response. And this can easily come into play when we're dealing with matters of preference, matters of conscience issues. Right? We've got to be aware that we don't bind other people's consciences with our preferences and convictions. Instead, we point them to the Word. Teach them from the Word. Let the, word, the Lord, by His Spirit, through the Word, change their mind if that's what they need to do. We come along, we help teach, instruct, disciple, but the Lord has to be the one to do the work. So, so, so we don't lash out, we don't yell at our family because our wants are not met, we don't stew on what someone else said that we don't agree with, and then we begin thinking negatively about them. Boy, that's so easy, isn't it? We assume their motives. Even we have to be careful how we, even when we tell the truth, that we tell it in the right manner. And the motivation, the reason he gives for this is where he goes on to say, do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't give the the devil an opportunity to manipulate or twist the situation. This word opportunity means a, a favorable circumstance for doing something. Don't give him that chance to exert his influence. Don't set the table with a place for the devil. No. But it is amazing how when our anger is allowed to fester, it grows, and everything in the story becomes more distorted. The person's character you're thinking about becomes more distorted. So what was once a simple situation that just going to someone and and dealing with could have been resolved, it now becomes complex and muddy. And we begin blame shifting and we assume we know their motives and we create these false characterizations about them. 
and the evil one loves for that to happen. Right? So we're back to our message that we talked about last week, 2 Corinthians 10. No, we stop those thoughts, we take them captive to Christ, asking what is true, and we engage with the truth. But the evil one loves to make mountains out of molehills. And we can jump right in that game if we're not careful. So we ought to reconcile quickly with our brothers and sisters in Christ when it's needed. We ought to repent of our own sinful anger instead of letting our imaginations about the other person run wild. And we must be guided by 1 Corinthians 13 of believing the best when it comes to assuming motives. Because as, as new creations of Christ, we are to set aside that fleshliness and instead pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ including putting aside selfish anger that assumes the worst and separates friends. But instead, we are consumed with seeing God honored in all things more than ourselves being exalted. So we replace the wrong anger for the right kind in the right way. Thirdly, we replace theft with work. We replace theft with work. Verse 28, he goes on. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share, this is fascinating, with one who has need. We replace theft with work. What's the prohibition? Well, we don't steal. We don't steal. And now now think about Paul writing this in his time. You know, there were no government bailout programs. Many people actually didn't have much, and they didn't save much. So it was common for stealing to be a way to survive. But we know, we know the Eighth Commandment, right? People, the Jews would have, should have, would have known, right? The believers would have known as the law was taught, right? Shall not steal. Why is it wrong? Well, besides God says so, why does God say so? Well, when we steal, we try to play God. We think we get to determine what, what is valuable to us, and we can take what we want. I get to determine who gets what, who doesn't. It says that God doesn't know what I need. He can't help me. And that I have the authority to do whatever I want with no consequences. Like I'm in charge. But the Scriptures also warn Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, that the one the, the, who's a thief, the one who steals the thief, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God as well. The one who practices this, loves it, enjoys it, characteristic of them, ooh, that does not show someone who knows Christ. Now, we are commanded, though, to do something here. Okay, put away the thievery. Instead, what do we do? We labor, we work honestly. The, the word has a sense of exertion, right? Get this. Work is hard, and we're going to be tired. But hard work is a good thing, and we should be tired. We are not to be lazy all day, every day. Not to be lazy all day, every day. Work is a good thing. God created work. He gave it to Adam in Genesis 2.15, he gave work to Adam before the fall. So work is not a result of the fall. Sorry, I might have just like ruined your weekend there. 
What came with the fall in Genesis 3, 17 through 19 is a curse that it would be toilsome. It would, your work would not produce quite as much, quite as easily as it was originally intended. Work would be toilsome with pain and little yield. That's why it's hard. It's also hard because, let's admit it, we often want shortcuts. Our flesh likes the ease. It wants the easy, comfortable life. But we must war against that. We need to show ourselves a disciple of Christ by working hard, by depending on Him for the strength to do so. And then when people notice that hard work that God has commanded us to, and they may even comment upon it or comment about your reliable work ethic, what do you do? You can say thank you. That's okay. And then you give God the credit. And you tell Jesus about, or you tell people about Jesus who has done the greatest work, the hardest work, to save sinners. He gave his life. He endured the most difficult and painful work ever. And yet he saves us by that. We know the Apostle Paul himself worked with his own hands. And then he exhorted believers to work. The Bible is clear. It exhorts people, work. He says in Second Thessalonians 3.10, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. Or how about 1 Timothy 5.8 where he says, But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We, the culture, the peop, lots of people know they need to work to provide. Well, how much more so should we be doing that? And not just providing for ourselves, our household, we must be doing that. Men, we must be doing that. But then as we'll see in a little bit, provide for others. It's not just about us. But we live in a culture that wants everything freely given to them. Freely given. You might even see that in news headlines that just don't seem to go away. We live in a culture that wants all play, no work. It is a battle against laziness and selfishness that puts burdens on others so that they can just have some comfortable, relaxing life, wasting their days with entertainment. But God does not command us to live this way. And if even the lost world knows they must work hard, though it, can be, it is twisted and pursued for the wrong motivations, how much more should the people of God be working hard? Young men, youth, part of growing up is working. And if you're not old enough to go get a job, there is work to be done in the home you live. We need to be working hard. It's a good thing. So it's time to get to work. If you're too young, ask your parents, how can I help out around the house? What can I do? Not, by the way, young people, not everyone needs to go to a college and get a four-year degree. There is a good thing about working hard with your hands. And I will tell you yesterday that at the men's breakfast, it's a good thing when the heater doesn't work that you can call someone that knows HVAC. <laughs> right? When you get your first house and plumbing, you know, something goes wrong there, you'd be calling the plumber. It's a good thing to work with your hands. It is not a lesser job. 
So get a job. Men, get a job. Provide for your family, whatever that is, because work is a good thing. But what, atti- what wrong attitudes might I have, though, concerning work? What am I carrying with me? Well, I might have this attitude that I shouldn't have to work or that others should pay for what I want, right? These are the, these are the ideologies we deal with in the culture that if we're not careful, we can pick up too. Oh, I shouldn't have to work. I just want to just want to flip through TikTok all day. I think that's what it's called, right? (laughs) Or others should pay for what I want. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones on this point. He says this, it is a dangerous thing to have wealth and possessions without having earned them in some shape or form. And a society that experiences much of this kind of thing is asking for trouble. That's from Martin Lloyd-Jones. How about this false ideology we must be on guard against? I deserve big pay with little effort. I shouldn't have to work long or hard to accomplish my project or to make it to the highest level in my company. Because in fact, God wants me to be happy and I'd be more happy if I didn't have to work or be at the office so long. So therefore, work is bad. All ungodly thinking. Work is good. Our God works. So we should imitate him in that. Work brings benefits. It, it provides the needs for you and your family and for others, as we'll see. It develops character. It gives you the opportunity to use your life as a testimony for God's work. But then also, as our text says, and we've mentioned the end of verse 28, it gives you something to share with the one who has a need. That's the motivation behind it, really, so that you can help the needy. Just like Christ helped us. In Proverbs 21, it has something to say about this. Verses 25 and 26, it says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hand refuses to work. But verse 26, All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Okay, what's the characteristic of the righteous one? Which, by the way, in Christ we are now made righteous by grace alone through faith alone, and that righteous life is the life we're pursuing. What is it? I give generously. I give generously. I don't stop giving of all my resources because, hey, by the way, I don't own any of it. I work hard for resources so that I can give it to those who are in need while also taking care of my family and the needs that are there. And, uh, and on top of that, when, when I earn more money or have more resources, uh, I want to give it to those so that I can be a witness to those of the Christ I know, who for our sake, though he was rich, became poor so that we would become rich in him. Not financially rich, but rich in righteousness. I want to show that practically with what I do in my life, with my resources. So how are we using our resources, our money, our time even? Are we using it to help others, especially the body of Christ, which is what this whole chapter is pointing to? We're just stewards of it. It belongs to God. We manage it for His glory and the goodness of His people. And so as new creations in Christ, we are to set aside that fleshliness and we pursue a life that builds up the body of Christ. That means I've got to put away laziness, I've got to put away selfish pursuits, and I need to work hard. And I'm repl- replacing theft, or even the attitude behind theft, for hard work. Fourth, 
Verses 29 through 30 tell us to replace unwholesome talk with God-honoring words. Replace unwholesome talk with God-honoring words. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we think about the context of the body of Christ as someone who has put away fleshliness and is pursuing Christ-like conduct. This is talking about how we interact with one another and what we say. What's the prohibition? Put away the unwholesome talk. Put a filter over your speech. Filter your words. Don't let any, any, any trace of unwholesome or corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Anything. In the original text, the word all or every is at the very beginning. Giving emphasis. All of it has to be put away. So we pray with the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So that nothing unwholesome would just sneak out. Nothing. It's guarded. Or as Colossians 3.8 says, to put away all the obscene talk, the dirty, filthy talk. In fact, Paul would even say a few verses down from here in verse 4, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather should be giving of thanks. This unwholesome talk, this unwholesome, corrupting speech. It is, the word here has the idea of being bad to the extent of being harmful. To the extent that it is harmful. It actually creates harm. It is rotten speech. Foul words. Putrid. Worthless. Oh, that one's interesting. Do my words, are they, they, do they have a purpose? Or is it just worthless? Worthless speech. Disgusting speech. I had a professor in, in seminary got to study through Ephesians in his class and he said these are words that were described uh, often at the time to des- uh, for describing spoiled fish or rotten fruit we all should or will know or do know that spoiled fish does not smell good probably doesn't taste good either our words should not bear those characteristics but, 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 we do have so much trouble, it seems, with this dangerous thing. This, as James would talk about, this, this tongue, boy, it's like a fire. It just can ignite anything so easily with a little spark. Why, why, why do we have so much trouble not using harmful speech, unwholesome speech? Why? Well, because we're, we can be prideful. We like, we can, we can be tempted and like this idea of having power in a conversation, our positioning, we love the praise of man, so I'm going to use my words to exalt myself, or we might fear man. And all of that, what comes out of here, is really flowing from our heart. We remember what Matthew 12:34, what Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So imagine a, a water source that was tainted upstream. So there's a, a stream flowing down to this nice water source, but upstream, it's been tainted. It's been poisoned, but you don't know it down here and where you're physically going to get the water. Not until you try it. 
It can cause harm. Our words do cause harm. We know that. We see it happen. So we don't put away all that kind of speech, but instead, here's the pursuit or the command. We use words that are for edification. Edification. Building up. Only words that are good for edification, the building up of others, of the body of Christ. Words that are helpful. Words that benefit others. Imagine you're, you're building a house. You want to use the tools and supplies that further the completion of this project. Well, Christ is building His church, the household of God. That includes not just adding believers, but maturing His people, making them more like Himself. Our words are the tools that are meant to help refine and shape us to be more like Him. We are to use them rightly. And we use them, what's it say? According to the need of the moment. As meets the need of the moment. Wisdom considers the current circumstances of your conversation, of your interaction with people. So we use our words as that are truth, but we use them at the right time in the right way. There might be times we want to say something we know is helpful or even right, but we must consider, is this the right moment? And we, we especially need to consider that if our emotions are not aligned with how God says they should be. If our emotions or are wrong or we have that sinful anger brewing we need to we need to work on our heart first the things we say as one commentator say the things we say should contribute to the spiritual growth of the body of christ would you describe your words like that would you describe them as contributing to the spiritual good of god's people in Proverbs one or Proverbs eighteen twenty one warns us this that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So what ways are we intentional to use our words to help people grow, to encourage them, to be kind, to build up his people? And the motivation here behind this he gives is that it will give grace to those who hear. It will give gracious help. We, we should desire, our motive should be, I want to graciously help you be more like Christ. Not so that, I don't want to use words so that I can just gossip, further the rumor mill. No, I stop that. As Proverbs twenty six twenty says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. As tempted as I might be to join in that conversation, I'm not going to, because it's not right and instead, I'm going to use my words to further the growth of the body of Christ. Gracious words, kind, favorable, that helps and encourages. But he goes on here. He actually throws in another prohibition within this about our words. And this is verse 30. It is, it's actually connected in the original text that has the word and at the beginning of it. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's another motivation, prohibition. Hey, by the way, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in how you use your words and how you interact with the body of Christ. Don't grieve Him. Don't, don't sadden Him, cause Him to sorrow or distress. Which, by the way, points to that the Holy Spirit Himself is not a force. He is a person. 
He can be grieved. He's not an inanimate object. He can be grieved. He is at work. And a life that disobeys and dishonors God in some way grieves the Holy Spirit. When we choose to walk in disobedience, we are not living by the Holy Spirit's influence or His work in our lives. I mean, how do, how do you and I like it? We don't like it. How do you like it when someone you've been close to for a long time chooses not to listen to your warnings when they're doing something foolish? We don't like it. We're like, what's wrong with you? Listen, I love you. I care about you. Why are you doing this? Stop it. But they go on. That's grieving to us. It makes us sad. Or in the church, why are you going down that sinful way? Stop. Morning, you don't do it. The Bible says don't do it. What are you doing? And we see people just wreck their lives. And it grieves us. Well, as much as it grieves us, it grieves the Holy Spirit even more. Now, this is not a warning that you will lose the Holy Spirit. Because the new covenant guarantees the Holy Spirit abiding in us. But we can grieve Him, which we shouldn't want to. So that should be a motivation for us to avoid that sinful behavior. And by the way, not only motivation for that, there's another motivation here. We've been sealed with Him for the full, uh, for, for our inheritance, for the future day of our redemption. This is what Ephesians 1 talked about, 13 and 14. He's been given to us. We've been sealed by him. He owns us. The Lord owns us. And we have been guaranteed our inheritance. He's a, a down payment of what's to come. There's, there's great assurance because the Spirit of God dwells within us. And one day, we will be again with the Lord. We will be freed from the presence of sin. We will be perfectly conformed practically into the image of Christ in the sense of holiness practically holy, not just positionally holy. And when Christ, this day of redemption, when Christ returns for his church, we will see him in glory and we will know our redemption to the fullest. And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a promise. Hey, that day's coming for you. Don't, it's coming. It's not here, I know. But take heart, it's coming. Just, you, you keep walking faithfully. A lifestyle that honors Christ, keep walking. But don't forget, it's coming. All things will be made right. So may we use our words intentionally to honor God, to build up his people, and intentionally putting the word of God, scripture, as part of our normal conversation. Because as new creations in Christ, we are to set aside that fleshliness and pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ. So replace the unwholesome talk with God-honoring words. Now lastly, we replace harshness with tenderness. We replace harshness with tenderness. This is verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What's the prohibition? Get rid of all words and behavior works that tear apart one another. Get rid of all of it. Get rid of the bitterness, which is a harsh state that holds grudges against someone for something in the past or a sense of hostility and resentfulness. We've got to remove it. Put it all away. Especially as Hebrews 12.15 tells us that bitterness, when it, we, are, we are not to let bitterness take root in our hearts because it's like, it's like a poison. It's like a weed. It'll pop up everywhere. 
One writer said, quote, bitterness denotes that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things, that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor, that brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom in the words of his tongue. Or as Lloyd-Jones says, it never sees any good in anything, and it always contrives to see something wrong or some defect and deficiency. Just constantly bent that way towards the negative. What's wrong? Expects the worst. Not believing the best or hoping the best as 1 Corinthians teaches. And it's easily provoked by people or circumstances. What does that might practically look like? Well, this person might always come back to one issue in every conversation. One wrong that was done. Carrying around a hurt or offense and not forgiving being okay with torn apart relationships and not seeking reconciliation, and even then so not just moving on, but always irritable, always short-tempered, unwilling to listen, and unwilling to believe the best or what others say. We put it away. We lay that aside. That's the old way. We don't live that that way anymore. Christ has not been bitter toward us. Why would we be that toward others? But then he goes on. We've got to put away wrath which is that, that moment of rage, that intense displeasure that rises beyond anger within, a, within us and it just boils over uh, kind of that passion, but the wrong passion. And we put away the anger that's behind it, that, that brewing of ongoing displeasure. We put away the clamor, which is that out loud clashing where angry and wrathful shouting goes back and forth leading to more conflict. We, in fact, we put away the slander. We don't use speech to defame others, speech that is profane, speech that is disrespectful. The slander has the idea of the character assassination. Just saying things to make the person look worse. That's wrong. Or even the malice, we put it away. That mean-spirited or vicious attitude. The church should not be characterized by these things. And yet, so many people who call themselves Christians are bitter, angry, wrathful, inconsiderate people who call themselves Christians. And admittedly, us Christians, we can deal with that too. Right? That's why we need to be on guard. Set it aside. Instead, we pursue a loving, tender demeanor that reflects the gospel. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Be constantly be kind. Not just one time. Constantly be tender. Constantly be kind. Constantly be forgiving. Again, all this, did you notice? This is in regards to how we relate to one another. How we interact with one another. We're to be kind, loving, good, benevolent, intentionally seeking the good of someone else. Right? Isn't this based on the kindness of our God towards us? We're kind because God has first been kind to us. In fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It shows that God is working in us, that we know Him. But we're not just that. We're tender-hearted, compassionate. We actually care about each other and tender in our feelings towards each other. We actually care for the well-being of others, for those who are especially our brother and sister in Christ. And when they're hurt, We don't like that. If we did it, we ask for forgiveness. Or when they hurt, 
or sorry, when they rejoice, we rejoice with them because we care about them. But not only that, we are to be forgiving, right? Forgiving one another. This is commanded. We are forgiving. We're showing grace by pardoning and setting aside wrong done towards us, taking the bullet. Instead of being bitter, we're willing to forgive. We don't demand repayment. That debt has been canceled. Why do we forgive? Because we ourselves have first been forgiven. That's the motivation. God in Christ also has forgiven you. An unwillingness to forgive demonstrates either you don't know God or your relationship with Him is not where it should be. Because God has been forgiving and kind to us, we should as well to others. That's our motivation. Even when it's hard, we stop and remember. The gospel reminds us that the debt I've been forgiven by God, my sins I've been forgiven for God, do not compare to the wrongs that other people have done to me. And if I think they do, I have forgotten the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my sin. So are we demonstrating these negative traits that we're actually to lay aside? If we are, we need to repent of them and put on the positive traits, trusting the Lord for the strength to do that. And if I can just be straightforward here for a moment, in all that we've been through at EBC, these two verses are really important for us. The Word challenges us. The Word is challenging us here. The Word challenges us to evaluate which of these two verses, 31 or 32, are we falling in. How are, what, what, what characteristics are we displaying? It's hard not to drift to verse 31. But we must intentionally pursue Christ-likeness by displaying what is shown in 32. And then the gospel and all that, it influences it. Influences the way we think, influences the way we live, influences the way we treat each other. And as those in Christ, we must put aside attitudes and actions that destroy relationships. We must put that away and instead be people who display Christ-likeness in our tender love for one another because we are replacing harshness with tenderness. Now, why is that all important? Well, God said so. First and foremost, right, we follow this because this is the Word of God. But thinking in this context as new creations in Christ, we are to set aside fleshliness and pursue a lifestyle that builds up the body of Christ. That's what we're called and commanded to do. And it's imperative that we live a life that demonstrates that God has changed us. Are we doing that? Do others see that in our lives? We must live a life of holiness because, because, because Christ has shown amazing mercy and grace towards us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, these are very direct commands, prohibitions, pursuits we're to follow after, but they're all given reasoning of why, and it centers around because of what Christ has done for us. Father, we are so thankful for that mercy, for that, that grace towards us who don't, don't deserve it. And yet, boy, what... What riches and treasures in Christ we have been given. Forgiveness, the hope of eternal life, the promise of redemption being made full, the promise to be with our Lord. 
in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I thank you so much for that. And Lord, we know as we wrestle with the flesh and then we interact with one another that these wrong traits can, can come out at times. Father, help us to lay it aside, being willing to sacrifice, to walk a life of holiness for your glory and for the good of our brother and sister in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.